Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hi, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates in Silicon Valley. I'm your host for this episode of Women in Manufacturing. I'm the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, and we help. that's where we help companies bring back their manufacturing to the U.S., I also run a global supply chain consulting firm called Blue Silk Consulting, where we help clients with global supply chain strategies and projects, and where I also do expert witness work in legal cases involving supply chain disputes. On these podcasts, I interview accomplished women in business and ask them to share their experiences with us. And today, I'm really delighted to welcome Michelle Lamasina the CEO of Explora International and a friend of mine from the international training and advisory firm called Explora International. And she's going to talk to us today about best practices of Silicon Valley. She's also a published author of the very, very popular book called Decoding Silicon Valley. Yeah, there it is. There you go. And so welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much, Rosemary. It's a pleasure to be here. Can we, can, let's start off, if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to be a mentor and a trainer for startup organizations around the world. What prepared you for this career? So I think the thing that happened to me as a child was that my father was a diplomat, so we spent a lot of time living overseas. I have a sister that's born in Panama, along with an aunt and a number of other long connections that go back to Panama to like the 1950s. But what ended up happening for me is I thought I was going to become a foreign service diplomat like my father. But the problem was I failed the foreign service exam when I took it. And I didn't find out till like 10 or 12 years later that most foreign service executives take the exam at least twice, if not three times. It's like it's a difficult multi-day exam. It would be like sitting for the bar exam in California, for example. And so when my hopes were dashed that I was going to be working for the U.S. government, I really thought that, you know, how can I put my expertise, my language skills, specifically my Spanish and my French, to work internationally. And one thing led to another, and I ended up working with the Mexican government for about eight years, and they were helping to bring early-stage companies into Silicon Valley, tech companies, and to connect them with the rest of the ecosystem. And then, so fast forward about 15 or 18 years later, still based in Silicon Valley, and I've worked in about 65 countries around the world now. And I've had the honor and the pleasure of, you know, training entrepreneurs, training mentors, training service providers that support those entrepreneurs and those startups, you know, just lots of different people in a successful global entrepreneurship ecosystem. You're teaching people about how to be an entrepreneur or how to start a business training in that regard? It's not so much about how to start a business. It's really the process that once you have the idea for the product or service, how do you actually, you know, develop a feedback loop with the market so that you understand whether or not you're giving them a product or a service that they want or don't want. And so from my perspective, all my early tech career as an employee was as a VP of marketing or a VP of sales 
or VP of Biz Dev and Partnerships. And so I've been really focused when I was in a corporate employee of tech companies, really on the revenue side of the business and launching new products and technologies. And so later I was able to take that experience and transfer it over to entrepreneurs to help them understand how do you listen to the market? How do you do your research with the market to understand whether or not you're delivering something that they want to buy on a repeatable sustainable basis. So it's less about how to start your business and more focused on once you've got it started, how do you have that dialogue with the market? So it must differ somewhat by culture or by country, right? I mean, there's got to be differences in the approach to the market and what people like and think about and what attracts them. I know, for example, in the U.S., we look at websites and our preferences are usually a clean face to the website. Amazon, for example, a lot of white space, that sort of thing. If you look at those same kind of websites in China, they're full of red colors and flashing lights and, you know, all kinds of different things that happen that it's really, it's culturally more attractive to them in that regard. So there must be those kind of differences around the world on markets, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you just, you know, think about your own travel from one part of the United States to the other, you know, and you can listen to how people speak differently, how they perceive events, activities, politics, the economy different than somebody in a different part of the U.S. But specifically internationally, you know, we've got the added dimension of that country's history, their language, their religious practices and beliefs, their style of doing business and negotiation. So, you know, what might work here in the Silicon Valley area might not function really well in a particular country in the Middle East, for example, where there's a lot more about it takes longer to build trust and relationships in the conversation. And, you know, so you would spend the first few days of your visit in that country doing something different than if you came to Silicon Valley from another country and everybody is like, all business, seven by 24. It's not really how it is here, but it it does go fast. Yeah, it's your first day at work. So join the meeting, you know, yeah, (laughs) really different. I think that's a very important insight that around the world, people are not so quick to develop relationships like we are in the U.S. I mean, we just have a fundamental approach on trust and getting things done and getting going and let's start the meeting now and get going and Versus many other places, at least that in my experience, it's not as extensive as yours, but in Europe and Asia, where you really have to spend some time building a relationship before you can do serious business together. Yeah. And I think that the uniqueness about Silicon Valley is that, I mean, let's face it, it's a very different way of doing business here. And the fact that we have, you know, about half the population here comes from another country. We have more than 120 different languages and dialects spoken in the Silicon Valley area. And we have these universities that attract people from all over the world. And this ecosystem for, you know, growing and scaling companies, for innovation, for change, for whatever you want to call it, it's unique in the sense that everybody starts from a position of trust here. So we're all equal. We're all trustworthy until we're not. But in most other countries I've worked in specifically, you know, you're not trustworthy until I've spent a lot of time talking to you about your values, your characteristics, et cetera. So that understanding and that position of trust that we start with here, it's, 
mainly for two reasons. Things go a lot faster when you start from a position of trust. And also we have the FOMO factor, the fear of missing out. And if you and I get connected by a third party, you and I are going to probably talk pretty quick because that third party thought it was worth it to connect us so that we could talk because we trust them. So now I trust you. So now we're going to have that conversation and maybe in an hour we'll figure out a way to work together. But things happen very fast here because of the trust and because of the fear of missing out. That's another important insight. Me too. I mean, having worked for many years in Silicon Valley, I find that, you know, people expect you, number one, to be competent, to be trustworthy, to be able to do your job. And you go sliding into a meeting, you know, sort of head first, and they just expect (laughs) you to perform. There's no time (laughs) given for, you know, for learning or learning curve or whatever. It's like getting up to speed, forget it. (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing that's really quite amazing is the pace. So any place that I've worked, you know, all across America and consulting projects and so forth, you know, the pace can be pretty fast and, you know, reasonable. But man, Silicon Valley, you're double timing all the time in terms of the work that needs to be done and accomplishing what you need to do. And if you need to work at midnight from midnight to two, that's expected. And, you know, it's just the expectations of how much and how fast are much, much higher. Yeah, very interesting. Well, in in that regard, then I want to switch a little bit and talk about your book. You want to hold it up again? So in case anybody (laughs) Shameless Self-Promotion, Decoding Silicon Valley, The Insider's Guide. It's on Amazon, hardcover, softcover, and uh, Kindle. And it's very, very popular. A lot of people have read it that I know, and I've read it. And inside, you talk a lot about best practices in Silicon Valley. So what kind of things, can you give us some like examples of what kind of best practices that might be applied more broadly across America and the world? Yeah. So first thing is learn to be able to communicate about whatever you're doing. So have your elevator speech, you know, as a minute or so, so that when you're meeting people, whether it be in a situation like this on Zoom or online, or if in the future, you know, face-to-face, be able to communicate and articulate what you're doing. And if you're in Silicon Valley, who you need to get connected to. So that's the first thing is just be able to talk about yourself for a few minutes. But the other thing is, you know, be able to ask questions. So be a good listener and ask questions because you're wanting to look for ways to collaborate. The third thing I'd probably recommend is if you are an entrepreneur or a business manager, business owner, you want to have a direct dialogue with both prospective customers and customers. So you want to understand whether or not your marketing message, your go-to-market strategy, your pricing structure, your business model, your service and support, do all these things make sense for what your prospective customers want and what your existing customers care about? So. A really good feedback loop is really, really important. And then I would say that when you say feedback loop, you mean uh, having your peers give you feedback or just feedback all the time. And there's some famous examples like Netflix where they're like their whole structure is based on giving feedback loops all the time, all the time. So giving people and not negative per se, but being able to shift your approach or your strategy by getting feedback from people who say, well, that didn't work, or you said this and it made me feel this way. And I think you need to adjust or that sort of thing. Is that the kind of feedback that you're talking about? That's one kind, but I was more precisely referring to feedback from the market. 
So prospective customers, whether you're selling a product, you know, they've expressed an interest. They match your target demographic of who you think is your best profile of customer, and then your existing customers. Do they have the opportunity to give you advanced feedback on your marketing message, your pricing structure, your strategy, things like that? So when I say feedback loop, I mean a way for the company, the entrepreneur, or the business owner to continually be understanding what the market wants or doesn't want so that we can get to that ultimate utopic phase of product market fit, meaning we're building a product the market wants to buy. Isn't that related to asking appropriate questions also? I mean, it seems to me, I worked for a guy who was the president of a consulting firm, and he used to talk about the Jedi questions all the time. So if you know Star Wars, the Jedi asked two questions to get to the answer, right? And so they really thought about and prepared the questions and so forth. And so we used to teach that saying, before you go into a meeting with anyone or you you know, try to advance an idea or whatever, you need to really think through the appropriate questions and structure those questions so that you get to the kind of response you're looking for and answer the question. So I guess in a feedback loop, you'd be trying to look or ask for those kind of questions that are going to get you honest feedback that's going to improve your approach. Absolutely. You have to be clear about where your gaps of knowledge are, and you have to be really thoughtful about how you structure the question to not, you know, steer the respondent in a way that is due to misinterpretation, for example. So you have to be thoughtful about that. But that feedback loop, even if the questions aren't written and they're as informal as One of my favorite customers I talk to once a month or we have coffee or whatever, that you've got an ongoing trust relationship so that you can have open dialogue. Because the single biggest reason companies fail in the end is product market fit, meaning they didn't have a product that the market wanted to buy on a repeatable, sustainable basis. So if you don't have a loop to continually talk to the market, you'll never know if you're actually on point or off. So how do you do that? I mean, if you're a business and you have a product or service, how do you continue to ping the market? Do you just talk to your customers all the time or surveys or how do you do that? Yes, all of the above. So you've got to have some survey mechanisms or some baselines. You've got to establish some baselines for your research and then do some frequency of surveys that make sense. When I ran a sales team, one of the things that the inside account managers had to do, these are not people that are actually visiting companies and doing the initial sales process. So the account managers were in the field with the sales managers at least once a quarter face-to-face meeting with customers so that they could hear and see what the customers were saying. Because normally they have an inside role in the organization and are just meeting on Zoom or phone. But this was actually put them in the field to develop those kinds of, you know, listening skills and that sort of thing. And then, of what's course, the, one last the thing. Way to get that. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. And, and the one last thing I was going to tell you is our CEO used to hold customer dinners in each city. So we'd invite five or six customers and they'd sit with our CEO at a nice meal and they'd talk about issues. And, you know, it was a nice way to thank the customers for their business and also elicit feedback on the next idea or the improvement that we were working on. Yeah, I think that eliciting that feedback is really, really key. And it takes a lot of practice to get there. 
you can just ask questions in general, but they're not going to get to the answers that you need to really develop your approach, right? And right. in other cultures too, you know, an indirect way of communicating may be very difficult to get the feedback that you're looking for. I mean, yes. in the U.S., if if you don't like something or you don't like a product or service, you kind of just say, well, I didn't like this about it or it didn't work for me or something like that. You would never get that in Asian cultures, right? It's an indirect way of communicating where they're going to say something like, well, you know, here's an example. When I visit factories overseas, I always look at the cleanliness, right? And if I see there's trash on the floor, there's a lot of garbage that's created in a manufacturing environment. If I see that there's trash on the floor, instead of saying, how come you didn't clean up the trash, you would say, is there a policy in place for sweeping the floors every day? And that way you let the people save face and don't blame them, right? But you have to be very cognizant of what questions you're asking and how you ask them in order to get the answer that you're looking for. Because otherwise you're going to get pushback or you get, you know, somebody else just shut down or they're going to give you happy talk and you're never going to get the answer you want. Is that, yeah. is that what you find? Yeah. I've experienced in Latin America, for example, and I speak fluent Spanish, so I've experienced people not willing to give me anything that's even perceived as remotely negative feedback. So right. even right. in Spanish, it's all wonderful and beautiful and happy talk, as you say. And then there might be the slightest comment in the middle there that could be perceived as either neutral or negative. And then boom, there's more happy talk. So they sort of like floated this tiny little thing. And if you're not listening well enough, you're not going to be able to key in on that and say, so tell me more about that. What does that actually mean? You know? Well, and that's a, you know, that's a key thing in Silicon Valley too, is we always talk about failing and yeah. how important it is to fail. So try something and fail. And I think that's a kind of an important concept, even when you're just talking to customers or you're out somewhere asking questions or whatever, is you look for any indicator that you should improve or you have failed in some way or another, because that's the way we learn. I mean, that is right. truly the way right. we get better. And that's so hard for people to understand. I, I work with people who don't accept criticism very well. Mm -hmm. And that's very unfortunate because criticism is the way we learn. If somebody says you're not doing this right or I didn't like this or whatever, that you should learn and adjust your attitude and your approach and the products you're serving, the products you're working with based on that kind of feedback. But it's not always easy, right? Yeah. I mean, and I think sometimes being from somewhere else in a different country or culture is perceived as a real advantage in the sense that, you know, they recognize for me, Michelle Messina, I'm from somewhere different, y habla español, for example, in Latin America, you know, they're perceiving me slightly different and maybe I can deliver a message to them that is slightly more direct, but diplomatic nonetheless. And I think that's yeah, a skill. You don't, you don't have to be diplomatic. I'm not talking about being mean or, you no, know, that's of course sort of not. Thing. But understanding the, the context and the cultural perspective is also very important to be successful. So true. So true. <laughs> so, Michelle, you've been all over the world. You, what did you say? 65 countries? 65 countries, yeah. 65 countries, wow. So where is your favorite place on Earth? 
wherever I am. I'm a very happy person and I'm used to getting comfortable wherever I am and whether I'm there for three days or three months. So I like to be in other countries and I'm really curious about the food and the, what's the cost of living and what's the political situation and, you know, what does it really cost for an apartment and how much is a car payment and, you know, where's the best place to get the local food? You know, so I'm really interested in all of that. And I spend a lot of time taking pictures on my time off when I'm in country because I think, you know, that's another way to see the country as well. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy wherever I am. You don't have any particular favorite? I love Vietnam a lot. I love Vietnam. Morocco. What makes Vietnam? Okay, because I have a tremendous amount of respect for Vietnamese women. They hold up more than half the sky in that country. And they work very, very hard in that country. And I have tremendous respect for female Vietnamese entrepreneurs that I've met. Plus, the food is so darn good. You know, that's another draw. Haven't been to Morocco yet. That is very high on my list. I like Northern Africa region a lot. I've been into Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia, lots of different places there. I'll be spending some time in the Balkans this year. So Kosovo, Albania, North Macedonia. I like that region a lot. Are you ever afraid when you travel? No, I don't think I am. I've been doing this for a while. So I've done a million and a half miles just on United Airlines. Okay. So I have learned to be careful, be safe, be observant. I have people that look after me when I'm there to a certain extent. I have people here that know how to find me. You know, my parents are in their 80s and they still ask for a copy of my travel itinerary. So they like to know where I am too. My daughter, she lives in Europe, so she knows where I am. So in general, no. And also, like I say, somebody's looking after me there. So hopefully they're telling me not to do this and to do that. And, you know, all those local things, like we would tell them if they came to Silicon Valley, right? We want you to be safe and have a good experience. Right, right, right. They always say, you know, I'm not afraid, but I'm also not stupid. So (laughs) I'm also, you know, very aware of my surroundings. I don't take any chances. I make sure I have secure transportation and that sort of thing. But, you know, it can be dangerous. I've been to some places that I thought were dangerous and I was a little scared. I've been lost at midnight in Beijing and that's a little crazy. Yeah. And, you know, different cultures are different. I mean, the police in China aren't there to help you. They're there to protect the laws. So, you know, you're kind of on your own and have to find helpers sometimes. But yeah, I'm not afraid either. And I think that's the best attitude when you're traveling the world, for sure. And I think the last thing is that, you know, we're all human beings. We're all people. And if we can look at another person in the eye and, you know, reflect, you know, uh, warmth and energy rather than, oh, I'm fearful. You know, that does a lot for setting the stage for the next set of things that are said or done. So you've got to be open to people and open to humanity. And I think that's a really important fact, regardless of whether or not you speak the language or you understand the culture. Well, I think that's very good advice anywhere, even in America, right? (laughs) Not be afraid of people and to understand you have differences, but be open to listening to others' perspective. Right, right, exactly. Well, 
Thank you, Michelle. It's been great. What's next for you? Are you continuing on? Are you traveling? You said you had a couple of trips planned. You're actually going to Yeah, I'll be outside the U.S. for quite a while this year. Got a lot of great opportunities to do development of startup ecosystems in a number of different regions around the world. And I'm really looking forward to that after more than two years of not traveling. It's like, you know, I did travel briefly in November. I went to Europe to see my daughter and because I teach at a university in Europe. And it was just like, oh, hello, Michelle. Meet Michelle. You know, this is the old you. Do you remember how to do all this? And it's like, oh, yeah, I know how to hustle through Frankfurt Airport. I know. Yep. Got all my paperwork. Know how to do all this. So, yeah, I'll be spending a lot more time outside the U.S. the next couple of years because there's some great opportunities to work in so many different countries that really want help. People around the world are hungry to find out what the success stories are in Silicon Valley, too. So that's great that you're carrying that message. I'm looking forward to it. So thank you, Michelle. Again, it was really fascinating. Can you give us your contact information in case anybody wants to get in contact with you? Absolutely. Well, you can reach me on WhatsApp or my mobile, which is plus one four zero eight nine eight one four eight zero one. So you can find me on WhatsApp or you can reach me via email, which is M Messina, M M E S S I N A at Explora. E-X-P-L-O-R-A international.com. Terrific. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. You can listen to more podcasts on Women in Manufacturing website, which is www.womenandmfg.com. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates, R-C-O-A-T-E-S, at reshoringinstitute.org. And visit our website, www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.